Heck, uh, I am excited today. Hi. Uh, also, we get some great uh, shirts today, a couple Hawaiian-style shirts. I'm loving it. Um, okay, on the screen, Stories in Stained Glass, Summer Sermon Series. Obviously, when you look around this room, one of the things that captures your attention is a beautiful stained glass, the light pouring in. One of the coolest moments every week is walking in, especially in, uh, I think actually it's in winter, uh, when we walk in in the morning and open up the church and it's dark in here, but through that one, uh, the sun is shining through. And actually, uh, get a good look at that now, because that's what this window, this big window in the back, is what our message is on today. Um, I actually thought about preaching from up there, but it might look a little weird. So we're going to do it from here. But get a, get a lot of looks at that throughout the sermon. We've got the big uh, Bible and then the, the cross and the crown up there. It's just beautiful stained glass. Um, and, and really, this, uh, this I'm preaching today, it's warm in here, uh, but I wore pants. We don't have to. It is preferred. I could have worn shorts, but I just, I went with the pants today. So uh, it just shows my dedication. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the, uh, but no, uh, really excited about this. Really excited. The hope and the prayer through this uh, is that we would actually get, feel more connected with our building where we gather, uh, more connected with each other as the church, more connected with uh, really, ultimately, Jesus and his mission through the gospel. And so that's why we're doing this. We've got eight weeks coming up where we're going to hit various windows in here. And yeah, as I said this week, we're starting with this big dog in the back. I am uh, looking at just real briefly the history of stained glass. Actually, uh, Pastor Drew from Columbia Heights came over. I met him on Wednesday, and he came and, and photographed some of these windows. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with photography of stained glass. Um, but not a lot of the photos turned out because it's actually really difficult to photograph well. Um, a lot of people do it at night with LEDs behind the light, actually. Um, so, but we, we got some images. The one that's backing on this slide is actually uh, one of the windows in here, part of their stained glass in here. Um, but just some things real quick on the history of stained glass. Kind of uh, what I found, it originated maybe in Egypt. It was heavily used in Rome. Um, but really stained glass took off in the medieval church and, uh, and the Renaissance also was heavily uh, influenced with stained glass. Um, and then it experienced a decline uh, for a while. And then when, when the interest in the Gothic style of architecture kind of revived, we saw uh, stained glass kind of come back. But I, the coolest thing I thought of or I found this week was obviously stained glass was meant to beautify churches, uh, to make them look nice. Uh, but one of the, the purposes of stained glass, and obviously to let light in, one of the purposes of stained glass was to provide images for the lay people who didn't know how to read. So you could walk through and actually see images and understand the story of the scriptures visually. Uh, and so um, that's kind of cool. So just telling the biblical stories to people who can't read. This book here, uh, we actually, so we mentioned this we wanted to do this series to the uh, to First Baptist who meets here. Uh, this is their church. And they, um, he, uh, Bill, Pastor Bill's like, hold on. And he goes and asks for a book. And, and uh, he got us this book, A Church in Lower Town. And this is kind of the, this, this church was founded in 1875. Or the building, right? The building was 1875, but the church was even before that. And, uh, and so this, there's just a rich history here, including... Stories in Stained Glass. This is one of the pages in, the, in this book uh, where they actually walk us through. Brian will probably take us through more of this and some of his messages. But why these images? We actually, Brian and I got a tour and got to hear about these two in particular. 
some pretty wild stories about how those came about. Um, and uh, really just a cool thing to see the history of this church through this book. Um, and the fact that, that we're meeting in a building that dates back that far. Um, that's pretty meaningful, pretty special. Uh, this week, though, will be based on this image. Um, we're going to look at the word, the cross, and the crown, because that's what we see up there in the stained glass. We see the word, the cross, and the crown describing the work of Jesus. Uh, I've got John 1, 18, 1 through 18 sorry, as a passage, but I've got a lot of scripture today, uh, so buckle up buttercup. Uh, it's just, I, if, if the biggest image on the thing is the, is the scriptures, then I feel okay to, to use a lot of the word today. Um, but where we're going to go, we're going to look at just kind of a biblical theology of the word of God. And, and a lot of people use that term in a lot of ways. When I'm using it, I mean a survey of the storyline of scripture. How the Bible at the beginning and through the story, where do we see God talking about his word? Second, we're going to look at the word in the life of the church and, and just some passages on how did the New Testament church think about the word. And then lastly, I want to get a little bit practical. Um, it's probably going to be more uh, just kind of ideas than necessarily like do exactly this behavior and exactly this action. Um, but we want to dig into like what does the word, how should the word shape us here as Hope Lower Town? And so... <clears throat> Just getting started here as we start the storyline of the Word of God. From Genesis 1, the very first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. If we just stop and really think about this, it's kind of wild. Like it's a little bit, it's a little wild. When verse three there, God just says, let there be light and there's light. And we see this, these first words of scripture, God's going to go on to say more things and speak more things into being. In these very first words of scripture, we see the awesome creative power of the word of God. That just when he speaks, it becomes uh, as we continue on in the story, we see a lot of sin enter the world, right? And, and things get really bad, and God actually scatters the people uh, at the Tower of Babel. It brings judgment upon them. And, and then he calls someone, a man named Abram. And he, he comes to Abram in Genesis 15, moving further in the story, and it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So we see the word coming in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And I think when I read this passage a lot, because uh, I go back to this one quite a bit, I always think about, man, look at Abram's faith. He just walks out. God's like, hey, you see those stars? That's what your offspring's going to be. And Abram's like, all right, I get it. I'm on board with it. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. But look at God and his grace that he can foretell. Look at this. I'm going to bring an offspring through you who will be your own flesh and blood. And that's going to be, he's going to create 
an offspring that matches these stars. So we have this promise of an heir, these words of promise and deliverance from God's word. Moving on in the story, we see that the people of, uh, that come from Abraham become Israel and they are enslaved and, and, and then delivered from Egypt in the Exodus and, and God calls them to himself in covenant in the law. And Deuteronomy now is them kind of about to enter the promised land and, and Moses is telling them some things in a sermon. And he says in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. And we just saw that in the book of Hebrews, right? That they, did, they wanted the law to be stop being read. Stop telling us things, God. They were so frightened. Even Moses said he trembled with fear. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And so we see this, that there's a future prophet, there's an heir, there's also a future prophet that's to come and will speak fully the words of God. And so we go to Isaiah 55, we go into the prophets now. We've had all kinds of prophets come and go. Their task is to deliver the word to the people of God, to bring visions and words from God, to remind the people to come back to the covenant, obey the covenant. But one of the other things they also do is point to a glorious future. And Isaiah 55, we see really this personification almost of the word. It says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood and bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So now we see God's word of purpose will accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. And then we get to the end of the Old Testament, though, and we get this weird scene. Uh, so it says here, at just the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, or no, I'm not doing the joke, Brian, I'm not doing it. The Italian prophet Malachi, dang it, I can't, you can't not do it. Malachi delivers this word. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And if we were good Sunday school kids, which I wasn't uh, in Sunday school, but if we were, we know Elijah was way further behind in the story. So how are you going to send Elijah now? What are, what are you talking about, God? And we get this idea. But, but here, this is the end of the Old Testament, and we get 400 years now. Israel got pretty accustomed to hearing from the Lord through the prophets. And now they're going to get left on red. Huh? Young, young kids in here, left on red, right? Text message joke. It's when you don't reply to someone. Uh, you get left, or they don't reply to you, you get left on red. Well, here Israel gets left on red by God. He's, I'm not, I'm removing my word from you because you're not listening. But I will send this prophet. And actually, Jesus later in the Gospel of Matthew says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept that he is the Elijah who was to come, whoever has ears, let them hear. And so Jesus tells us who John the Baptist is. He says, this messenger, this guy from Malachi that was promised is actually John the Baptist. Uh, He's the last prophet in this sense that he's come now to pave the way for me. And Jesus is saying that the prophets and the law, all of the Old Testament scriptures were testifying the word of God is pointing forward to something. And then in John chapter one, we see what that something is. It's actually the person. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see this end of the drought. This new creation language, this again we see light used. And then we see here John's testimony. It says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we just look at the words here. True light. Fullness. He became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. He shows us the glory. He tells us of this new birth, this being a child of God, being born again. But we see that God's word is a person who came to dwell among us. The word became flesh. Continuing on, it says, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. When we look in the scriptures, we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see who God is. That Jesus, God's fullest self-disclosure, his fullest revelation of who he is, is the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, the New, New Testament commentary on the Old Testament says, the term the word conveys the notion of divine self-expression of speech. 
The Genesis creation account provides ample testimony to the effectiveness of God's word. He speaks and things come into being. Both psalmists and prophets portray God's word in close to personified terms, but only John claims that this word has appeared in space-time history as an actual person, Jesus Christ. And so we see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yesterday, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of this series, The Chosen, where they kind of tell the story of Jesus and the, and the early apostles, disciples. But we watched the first episode yesterday, uh, Allison and myself, and at the very end of it, we've watched this woman struggling, uh, going through all kinds of pain and all these hard things, demon possession, and, and just, just immense, immense pain. And she leaves, she's in this bar, and she wants to get a drink, and someone comes to her and says, that's not for you, and she leaves. She says, leave me alone, and he turns, and he calls out to her, and he says, Mary of Magdala. And she says, how did you know my name? And he comes to her, and he heals her, because the word of God became flesh. It's this powerful scene, and and really, when we look at the word, when we see the scriptures, we see it as God's megaphone, him declaring to us his goodness, his love, who he is, him making himself known, but he does that most fully in the person of his son, Jesus, when the word becomes flesh. <clears throat> but we can't stop there. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us but the word also founds the church. Jesus has come and he actually uses his word to start the church. That <clears throat> when we look at the, the word in the New Testament, we go, the first place we, we start besides the gospels, which tell us things like build your house on the rock. And, and we get the parable of the sower where that person that is planted in God's kingdom continuously is fed and nourished by the word and sprouts up. Is the book of Acts written by Luke. In the book of Acts, we see now the power of the Holy Spirit come upon the people and they start to proclaim the gospel. We see this, this proclamation. They go out willing to suffer for the name, excited, asking for boldness that they might go out and proclaim this good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And they go then beyond ethnic Israel to all nations. And the word spreads, it heals people, it starts riots. It saves souls. It turns the world upside down. This is clearly not just another entry in the marketplace of ideas, but something that is offensive and salvific at the same time. And then that word gathers believers and they become churches centering on that word. And so let's look at some of those things. First Thessalonians, one of a church is started by uh, the Apostle Paul says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So we see this gospel isn't just words, but it comes to those who believe with power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. It's okay to be convicted. It's okay to admit we're wrong. It's okay to, to admit shortcomings. 
But we see then the Apostle Paul saying, now you have this demonstrated, sacrificial, transformed lifestyle, so much that you would rather have the word than anything else, even in the midst of suffering, that you have joy. And this actually, this, I, this, this is very similar to what I pray whenever I preach, that, and when Brian preaches, that the word would come in power, that we would be met by the grace of the Holy Spirit and convicted. Continuing on, Colossians 3, he says, the Apostle Paul again says, let the message of Christ, the word of Christ, the gospel, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I once, a long time ago, I was considering becoming a bone marrow donor. And I learned about the process. When they do bone marrow transplants, actually what they do is they just inject the marrow from a healthy person into the arm. And the marrow knows where to go. And it goes into the bones. It just goes through the blood into the bones. That's what I've heard anyway. That's the idea here, that we've got to let the word of Christ dwell among us, get into our bones. And we also see we're called to teach and admonish one another. We're called to worship. We're called to remind people, consistently point one another back to the gospel. We do this. Every passage in the New Testament is written with one angle on community. And certainly it is here. Continuing on, 1 Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the, the, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So we see this obedience of, of faith that you've obeyed the truth of the gospel. You've put your faith in Jesus to the point where you have sincere love. And now Peter says, now love. Now love one another deeply from the heart because altogether you have been born again through God's word. The word that lives and endures, the word that was preached. And lastly, John again, calls us back to this idea. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is how he starts his letter to the church. He uses the sensory language to remind them, we've heard the word of God, we've seen him, we've looked at him and our hands have touched him. And it's him we proclaim, he is the word of life. And he wants them to be in fellowship with them and with God and his son. 
And they write this. This is an outward-focused thing. We proclaim this message. We take this forward so that your, our joy may be complete. We watch people grow. We watch lives be transformed. Again, we see God's word is his megaphone to us of his love and his goodness. And when we really think about it all, goodness and life originates with God. I, the, <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin, and one of the things Wisconsin is known for is cheese curds. Cheese curds are amazing. I, they, I, I'm not just talking about the ones that are deep fried. Those are good. Uh, the best ones that I've ever found are at the, at the fair in my hometown from the Optimist Club. They are unbelievably good. Uh, but I'm talking about the ones, too, that squeak together. You get in Wisconsin, it's just cheese in a bag, and we just eat it because that's apparently healthy. Uh, it's not. But cheese curds are amazing. They're really good. But where does that goodness come from? Where does the taste come from? Where does our brain's ability to take in that information and say, wow, I enjoy this. The ability to enjoy food and have our senses activated and, and to take pleasure in that, all of that, even cheese curds, originates back to the creator, to his goodness. Anything good is ultimately good because it comes from God. But there are a lot of things that are echoes of that goodness. A lot of things that, that look like they're gonna be ultimate, but aren't quite that. And so I've got a few, I try to, I got silly with this a little bit, but I've got Instagram perfection is this echo, right? The, the point of these echoes is we hear these false words of life. They say, chase after me. If you just get to me, I'm sounding out to you. Here's where life is. If you just get to me, you'll be okay. You'll have purpose, you'll have meaning. You'll matter. I started with Instagram perfection because, man, Instagram just makes you feel like you're lacking. Look at that great marriage. Or look at those excellent parents, how they set up and organize their house to, to get all the, the stressors of child ra uh, raising minimalized. Look at that person. They're so beautiful. They're so fit. I don't have that, but if I just could get there, I'd be Okay. Or self-rule. If, if I just have nobody making demands on me, if I could just mark out my own path, chart my own way, express myself how I want, whatever way that means, I'll be okay. Politics, if my, if my person just gets elected, we've got the solution. And anybody that doesn't agree with me is part of the problem. And that's where I'm, and I'm not saying any of these things are ultimately horrible, nor am I condemning them. I'm saying they can't be what God is. Van life. I don't, you guys, I don't know if you guys are seeing videos like this all the time. I'm seeing videos of people where they're like, I sold my, I quit my job and I converted a van and now I'm just traveling the country and I watch those and I'm like, I need to be doing that. Why? I'm incomplete. Because that's an echo. The echo saying, here's where real life is. The American dream does that, as if we could ever arrive. The American dream says, come to me. Get the house, the 2.5 children, the two cars. Continually get a nicer car. Continually remodel your house so it's nicer. Get those kids into a better school, and then you'll have fulfillment. It's an echo of what real life is. I know this because I watch my parents live in, a, in kind of like a suburb-type setting, and when one neighbor mows the lawn, 
you, you better believe that next neighbor's getting out there immediately with the nicer lawnmower, which makes the other neighbor think, I gotta get that better lawnmower. Guys, we can't chase that as ultimate. World religions do this too, right? They're saying, come to me, follow these principles, follow these rules, and you'll be delivered. But these are echoes. They're not where real life is found because at the end of the day, behind all the echoes, there's a voice. And it's Jesus. It's the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us and died for sinners so that we wouldn't chase the echoes trying to find life, but that we would come to him who is the word of life. And he's speaking to us in the word, words of grace and truth and life. But we won't find that anywhere else. So let's think about the word at Hope Lower Town. How does now this, this word that we want to dwell among us, that, that kind of language of he became flesh and dwelt among us, now we have this word as we move forward, as we look again at this thing, that's this big Bible at the top. How does the word influence life in the church and specifically here at Hope Lower Town? And I just have a small list, just a tiny list of six. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke. I cut this down. Um, but I want to look at some of these things uh, briefly and just think about these. First, the word uh, and worship. And, and just the, uh, actually, Pastor Drew told me this dad joke. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. But what he means is sometimes we can actually worship the word. We can actually worship doctrine and get, dog, get stuck, bogged down, and man, this doctrine's so precious. I gotta fight and contend for this doctrine, not realizing that behind the teaching is the person of Jesus and that we're called to worship him through the spirit. And so when we look at the word and worship, we see the spirit at work. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about it this way. He says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So in this passage, we see quite a bit. We see this idea of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually communicating with our spirit through the word. But that also makes us distinct because the people that don't have the Holy Spirit look at the word and say foolishness. But that, that we together share the spirit, we share the mind of Christ, that we have these things in common as a church, which is why we can go to the book and say, here's what I'm seeing, and I don't know if you're living in that way, and I can see that, and our shared authority of the scripture says, wow, you're right. I repent in dust and ashes, because you and I share the spirit, and you're telling me something that the spirit has communicated to me as well. And that's been a challenge this year because we've been isolated. We've been separated from one another in community. 
And so I have an image here of a train track. Because what has happened sometimes for us, and, and we've seen it all over this year, is I start going down the train track with an idea. I say, this seems to be true, I'm following this out. And I get all the way down the track, and normally when I'm in community, and my idea's wrong, one of you can bump up against me when I'm barely down the track and say, hey, I don't know about that. Where do you see that in God's word? I don't know if that's what he's calling us to. And that community helps me say, oh, you're right. I got a little off base there. Thank you for helping me. But sometimes when we don't have community, I can get all the way down the track. I'm following this idea to the end. And then what happens when you come to me? You say, hey, I think you're missing it. You're a little off base there. And I look at you and I say, you are wrong. You don't understand what I understand. You don't see it the way I see it. You're in the wrong. And now you've be I've become someone down this train track that can't be reasoned with from the scriptures, can't be reasoned with through the spirit, can't be reasoned with in community. So isolation's been tough on us. And we're gonna have to fight against that as we start to gather afresh. But that also means we've gotta take care for our media consumption. We've gotta look at things, and I'll talk more about it a little bit later, that are pulling us away from who God is and what he's about. And we've gotta be willing to put those in front of people for accountability. We've gotta be willing to examine those with discernment. One, this is podcast Paul, that's my nickname for this image here, but, but that's me from 2014. And when I met Allison, actually it was in 2014, 2015, and I call myself podcast Paul because who I was at that time, I didn't make arguments, you guys. I regurgitated a podcaster that I listened to so that people weren't actually having a conversation with me. They were having a conversation with the podcaster I listened to. But thankfully, God in his grace and by his spirit made me receptive. Allison challenged me on quite a few things. Eventually, I believe the gospel. And then the word became my highest authority. And now those things that that podcaster was saying that seemed so absolute somehow seemed less relevant, less urgent, because the scriptures seemed more urgent. Which leads us into the word and gospel culture that, that the gospel actually creates a culture, a way of being that we can all share. Some of the things that would make up a gospel culture, grace, need, dependence on Jesus, honesty, truth, receptivity to challenge, repentance, Apology, forgiveness, humility, sacrificial service, the honoring of others above self. Ray Orland Jr. is a pastor, says this, he says, why does this matter? Why must our churches preach gospel doctrine and embody gospel culture simultaneously by God's grace? And he says, because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. It also requires relational beauty in our churches. But it is possible sincerely to preach to doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. A culture where we don't see apology, forgiveness, repentance, listening, but a culture where we see pride, gossip, unrepentance, gracelessness. He says we have to contend not only for good doctrine, but to have lives that reflect the doctrine in a gentle and loving and grace-filled culture which brings us to the word and community. 
as mentioned already, we've spent a lot of time being isolated from one another. Just now, our small groups only met in person a few times. Just now, we're starting to kind of get back into community, and it is clunky. It is hard. It does not feel normal. Rubbing each other the wrong way, saying the wrong thing, wanting to cancel plans because it feels so good to just bail on stuff. People feeling disconnected. And we're trying, we're going to keep trying to make that change as a church, but we also have to take ownership over that. If I'm feeling disconnected, I've got to do something. I've got to take a step to reach out to somebody. And at the same time, like I said, we'll try and have events to get people connected. But we are all there. And it's been really hard. But let's move back into it. Let's move toward one another, as the Bible tells us, with all the words for one another's. Let's talk about the word in fighting sin. As the church, we are people who have seen ourselves as sinners and have believed the gospel, have repented, have said, I need a savior, I need forgiveness. And now we start to fight sin. We start to want to be like Jesus. As the word convicts us, leads us, guides us. What does that look like? And I actually want to go to a, a podcast. It's, he, the context of this podcast is talking about our response and people's response to, to the incident that happened with George Floyd. But I think we can listen to this and pull out principles that we can apply across the board. And I appreciate even the way they start. They say, we can have different perspectives. I welcome people to the conversation who don't see it the way I do. But if the utility, if the purpose of what you're bringing to the table is to move me away from the heart of God, you are a problem. Anyone trying to get you to tone down your care for your neighbor's suffering is doing the work of Satan. No sinner on the planet cares for people as they should. I don't need help ignoring my neighbor's pain. I don't need help finding justification for why I don't care about my neighbor's pain. I don't need help blaming my neighbor's pain on my neighbors themselves. I need help going in the opposite direction. I need help in grace. I need help in sacrifice. I need help in compassion. I need help in love, which without, I will not see the kingdom of God. Again, anybody trying to give you arguments, perspectives, or testimonies that lead you to a deeper sleep around your own apathy is not helping you, they're injuring you. And these words come from KB on the podcast, Southside Rabbi, he's a Christian hip-hop artist and podcaster. I think there's principles we can learn from these. I think that when we see what he's doing, he's applying the gospel. He's applying a theology of sin. We've talked a lot. We use the words total depravity, that I'm not completely depraved, but, but everything I do is tainted by the, the scent of sin, the touch of sin. And going back, he says, I don't need help ignoring my neighbor's pain. That's, that's what he's saying. No sinner on the planet cares for other people as they do my bent, my nature, my wiring as a sinner gets me up in the morning to say, protect self, serve self, love self, assert self. He's saying, I don't need help with that. I need help in grace. And that's what the gospel calls us to. It helps us. It shows us. Just the words, I need help, are gospel culture, by the way. 
and admission of need is how we become believers in the first place. I look, the word convicts me of my sin and say, I need a savior, I need Jesus. But again, as we think about our media consumption, are there arguments, perspectives, testimonies that lead us to a deeper sleep around obeying God, around living out his word, around reflecting Jesus? You know, and one more thing, we've got to be aware of self-righteousness here. It's very easy to read this quote and, and talk about these things and say, yeah, they're doing it. They're definitely doing it. I'm not, though. We've got to watch our hearts. Lastly, the word and God's mission. One of my favorite stories in the scriptures. This is the Ethiopian eunuch, this lectionary depiction here. And the Ethiopian eunuch had gone to, it's in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. But he didn't know who he was worshiping quite yet. And he's riding back and the Spirit spoke to, him, to Philip. In the book of Acts, the Spirit speaks quite a bit. The Spirit spoke words to Philip and said, go to that chariot. So Philip obeyed. That's, the, that's all it says. So Philip ran. Spirit said, do. Philip ran to do it. And the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting there reading. And he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, the servant song about the Messiah who's going to suffer like a sheep before its shearers is silent. But the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't quite understand it. He says to Philip, is the author writing about himself or someone else? And verse 35 of chapter 8 says that Philip did this. It says, beginning with Jesus or beginning with that passage, he told him from all the scriptures about Jesus. He takes that Bible, he takes that context of that Isaiah 53, again, because the word is all about Jesus. He is the word. He's the one that's pointing to. And Philip shows him this servant who died for your sins is the Messiah who rose again. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes by some water and he can't help it. Hey, I should get baptized. And he does. And Philip then is carried away in the spirit, right? Because the, the gospel's got to be proclaimed. We've got this good news of a savior who is the word of God, who died for sins, who rose again, where only life can be found. And we want to join God in proclaiming it. One of the ways we're doing that here is at the end of the month, the last Sunday of the month, we're going to have a church prayer time. We'll probably start doing it in the library down here, actually. But get it on your radar, because mission starts with prayer. And so we're going to gather as a family and start praying over a list of, of things, of ways to reach people, of ways to serve, of ways to do justice, of ways to love our neighbors, and of ways to proclaim. Lastly, let's just talk briefly about the word and the cross of Christ. The central moment of the story of the scriptures is the word of God, Jesus dying for sinners. And J.I. Packer says this, why does God reveal himself to us? Because as we saw, he who made us rational beings wants in his love to have us as his friends. And he addresses his words to us, statements, commands, promises, as a means of sharing his thoughts with us. And so making that personal self-disclosure, which friendship presupposes and without which it cannot exist. If God wants us as his friends, he's done everything to disclose that. 
and himself. Though we have lapsed into the ignorance of God and a godless way of life, God has not abandoned his purpose to have us as his friends. Instead, he has resolved us in his love to rescue us from sin and restore us to himself. His plan for doing this was to make himself known to us as our redeemer and recreator through the incarnation, death, resurrection, and reign of his son. And this is where, if we're going to look at that list of of the word in our lives, the word in our church, we've got to look to the cross. We've got to look to God's grace. We've got to look to, as, as what converted the Ethiopian eunuch, we've got to look to the sheep, to the Lord Jesus who went silently to the cross so that sinners could be redeemed and made new. We've got to realize we can't beautify ourselves. We will not be beautiful individuals. We will not be a beautiful church apart from the working grace of God through his spirit and through his word. So we've got to look to the one who was mangled for our sake so that we might become beautiful in him. As we close in gospel application, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Don't chase the echo. Don't be a podcast Paul. Let's go to the word. Let's do it together in community. And and if you're someone here or online that says, I, I haven't yet believed this, but this, I'm starting to feel this conviction. I'm starting to see my need. Let's talk about it. Today can be the day that you say, put your faith in Jesus. I say, I need this Savior. And then for us, only in Jesus can we be a truly beautiful church. Only in Jesus can we be a, a, a church shaped by the cross, awaiting the crown. When we come in, I, I really, my hope is that you'll turn around it once in a while and look up there and see that we are people brought together under God's word, made new by the cross and waiting for the crown as Jesus reigns right now. We're waiting for him to return in glory. We also need to remember a couple other things when we look at that stained glass, that one, we belong to Jesus. He is the friend of sinners and he is our savior. And two, only he, we belong to one another. We do. We're about to take communion. And one of the things I love to do is look around during communion and say, these are the church that God has called me to. But three, only he can make us truly beautiful. And he does it through his word of grace. So I'm going to pray. We're, I'm going to welcome the band up and we're going to take communion. We don't, at this, at Hope, we don't ask that you'd be a, a member of this church or even any church. We only ask that you'd be a follower of Jesus, that you'd put your faith in him. So if you'd Uh, like to, you can partake of the communion uh, that we remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us so that we might become beautiful in him. Let me pray for us and and we'll continue worshiping. Father, I thank you for your grace that you sent your son, that your word became flesh, that he has accomplished your purpose, dying and rising again, and he will bring everything to pass as he now wears the crown. Would you make us beautiful by your grace and by your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.